Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at how teams and organizations use their identities to further their brands. And if they can do it, well, why can't we? How can we uncover, embrace, and maximize our own identities to further our own success too? Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. But you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. As ever, thank you so much for joining wherever it is you are in the world, however it is you're listening, whatever it is you're up to, I appreciate every single one of you. Thank you if you're coming back, if you're a returning listener or viewer on YouTube. And if you're new around here, then welcome. There is a whole host of episodes for you to go and check out and peruse across all sorts of subjects. The very premise of this podcast is for me to share my learnings and my understandings from many, many years of working in the elite environment of Formula One and pass that on to you guys to enable you to go and have greater success in your own lives. I've managed to take so much from the world of Formula One and it helped me and still remains helping me every single day and I'm sure will do for the rest of my life. And it's the things I learnt in that space. It's the people that I worked with, that I shared the environment with, the things that rubbed off on me, the mindset that I've developed as a result of spending that time in Formula One that I know many of you will be able to benefit from too. That's why I started this podcast. That's why I continue it because you guys tell me that it is helping you in many of those ways and it's that that keeps me going. So please keep those messages coming. I really appreciate it. Any ratings and reviews in the Apple Podcast Store mean the world to me. So if you enjoy what you hear or see today, please consider giving me a five-star rating and a very quick review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. And he'd say a big thank you to Car Gods, who have once again sponsored this particular episode. Massive thank you to them. I talk about them every single week and how their attention to detail is so aligned with mine. So many of their values and their belief system they've built their business on, a great business of car detailing products, is so closely matched to the way that I now try and live my life, having spent all that time in Formula One. It's a great match for this podcast. I'm sure it will be a great match for you. So please go and check out cargods.com. If you've got a car that you want to look after and make look amazing, they have everything. And it's great stuff, believe me. Now, as I said in the introduction, today I want to talk about identity. And this is a subject that crept up for me earlier this week when Rolls-Royce released their latest car and it's an electric car the Spectre now I saw the images pinging around on social media the car looks great it's a huge luxury car but it's an EV it's an electric vehicle and it'll have all of the things that we all know and love about Rolls-Royce it'll have the ultimate of luxury it'll have the ultimate in comfort and style it'll be smooth it'll be packed full of technology It'll be everything that every other Rolls-Royce has been in the past because the, t the company's 
identity is built all around that. Those are the qualities that we've come to know and love about a Rolls Royce. But the reason that it struck me when I saw the images of this new car this week was that we were talking about it at work and it has the same huge, enormous, kind of iconic grill on the front of that car. Now, this is not just unique to Rolls-Royce. Many of the car companies that are producing electric vehicles now have the same thing. They still have a front grille on the car. Now, many of you will know that front grille traditionally has always been there because that's how you allow airflow into the front of the car to cool the car's radiator, which will then keep temperatures of the engine and other ancillaries under control. It's a means of allowing the airstream passing over the car to pass through that grill and get to the radiator and into the bits that get very hot. Now, we're talking about an EV in this particular case with this Rolls-Royce. It has no radiator. It doesn't have a great big rad sat behind that grill that needs cooling in the same way an internal combustion engine car has always needed that grill. So why on earth would an electric car designer want to put a great big grill on the front when it doesn't need one anymore. Can't we redesign these cars to look very different without the traditional constraints of an internal combustion car, i.e. the radiator grill? And the conversation, as it cropped up this week in the office at work, was around that. Why on earth have they done it? And the reason that they've done it, of course, is all linked to identity. And if we take Rolls-Royce as an example, but it really is just an example because there are so many other car companies, as I said, doing the same thing. It's that the face of that car, the face of any Rolls-Royce you've ever seen, has this big, striking, often chrome grill on the front. It has the spirit of ecstasy, the little lady that sits on top of that grill. And it's an iconic part of every single Rolls-Royce that's ever existed. It's the face that we recognise, and the moment we see that grill, the moment we see that emblem, we know it's a Rolls-Royce. And when we know it's a Rolls-Royce, we know that all of those other qualities that I mentioned a few moments ago will be embedded in that car. And that is exactly why they've put the same type of great big grill on an EV. It's because it's the brand's identity. It represents everything that Rolls-Royce stands for. It's a comforting thing for people to see when they see a Rolls Royce. It's a sort of creature comfort. It's something that reminds them of everything Rolls Royce stands for. It is a big part of that brand's identity. And when we're talking about identity from a brand perspective, it's really important. And we'll talk about why and we'll talk about how this affects us or can affect us in a moment. But if we keep to a brand perspective at a moment, an organisational perspective, every organisation has their own identity. If we talk about Formula One teams, many Formula One teams have their own identity. In fact, all Formula One teams will try to have their own identity. I mean, identity is literally defined in, in one way as the qualities or properties that make a person or organization different from the rest or different from another. And if you think about that for a moment, it's those little things that make a company stand out. And we have to be able to stand out as an organization. We have to differentiate ourselves from the competition because otherwise, why does somebody choose you? If you're the same as the rest, 
Well, that makes a consumer perspective or a an investor perspective as a customer or a client perspective. It makes it very difficult to choose you because you're the same as the rest in that competitive environment. So we have to find a way to stand out and differentiate ourselves. And if we think about Formula One teams, they do that for exactly the same reason. McLaren has always, even since its very beginnings, stood out for its attention to detail. Ron Dennis had this brand identity of consummate professionalism, of being the very best of the best when it came to appearance and attention to detail. And that's something the brand was built upon. So that meant that if you had blue chip sponsors who were also aligned to those kind of brand values, well, they knew exactly where they were going to go and spend their money. They knew who they wanted to be partnered with. It was McLaren. If you were a company that was massively professional, that wanted to stand out for your professionalism and your attention to detail, there was only one place you could go. Now, back in the day, Mercedes, think about Mercedes. Mercedes were a blue chip German company that stood for professionalism and attention to detail. And so back in the day, they aligned themselves with McLaren. It was a long-standing relationship. And Mercedes came to McLaren because of exactly that. The identity that McLaren had and the identity that Mercedes had, they were matched quite closely together. It was a partnership that worked for a very long time. If you think about Mercedes today, they still have that exact same identity. You think about Mercedes cars out on the road, you think about business people, you think about professional people, you think about very serious people, people who have class, people who love a bit of attention to detail. You probably wouldn't think about Mercedes in the same light as thinking of fun. If you're thinking of a fun car, you're probably not thinking of Mercedes. Now, that's not to say Mercedes don't make some cars that can be great fun. Of course they do. But their brand identity is not that. Their target market is much more on the business professional side of things. They are an upmarket car, an upper class car. They're a luxury car. And it's those identifiers that they want to be associated with. And everything around their brand is built around those identifiers. Now, if you think about Ferrari, for example, if we go back to Formula One teams, you know, and Mercedes, by the way, their Formula One team, I think we would probably agree, is very closely aligned to that same identity that the road cars that we all see and love on our roads. It's the same thing, isn't it? Professionalism, the very best of the best, attention to detail, methodical. And that's what we would think about the Mercedes Formula One team. You think about Ferrari, Ferrari's identity is much more around passion and their history, their incredible history in the sport. It's about raw-blooded, fiery sports cars and passion. It's that fiery red colour even, the Italian passion that's behind the brand. It's a long-standing family business that's still associated to that Italian nature. It's all identity. It's an identity that stands them aside from the rest. And of course, we could go up and down the grid and do lots of those kind of things for every team. Everyone's trying to dig out their own identity in different ways. And, you know, that's the teams at the top. Red Bull, for another, as another great example, Red Bull have come into this sport. And as a brand, 
their identity is all around fun and it's extreme sports and it's doing things differently. And we're not going to get into conversations about, <laughs> about budget, budget caps and all of the controversial elements of the current season and what's gone before with Red Bull right now. Not in this podcast. Maybe we will on another day. <laughs> but Red Bull as a brand, they're identified as a brand that's linked heavily to fun and doing things differently. These extreme sports, extreme marketing, they are breaking the mold. They are people that come along and revolutionize industries. That's what Red Bull wants to be associated with because their brand, that fizzy drink that some of us love and some of us hate, that brand is there to do just that. It's there to give you wings so that you can go off and you can fly and you can do things that other people can't do. It's all tied in to their brand identity. And every team and every company and every organization is trying to carve out their own identity that they think will serve them best in whichever marketplace they operate. Now, that's all wonderful stuff. It's a long-standing part of business to have a brand identity and then align everything with it. Make sure you're constantly referring back to that brand identity so that everything you do links into it and you stay true to it. And when you stay true to your brand identity, if that's what customers come to know and love about you and your brand, they will always keep coming back if your brand identity is somehow aligned to their values and identity as well. So when we're talking about business, it's really, really important part of what we do. Now, I always want to try and link this back to you and I, to the individual. That's what this podcast exists for. I spent much of my time, I spend much of my time today going around the world, talking to companies and huge, enormous organizations and brands right across the planet to try and use the methods and the tools that I have learnt in Formula One to help them to become better brands. And a lot of this stuff is what I talk to them about. But this podcast exists because I realized that there was a need and an opportunity to share those learnings and those understandings of those things that I talk about to the corporate world, to you and I, to people like you and I, people who are just going about their business, trying to live their lives in the best way possible. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm hoping I, it's safe to assume, as I said last week, that you're either a Formula One fan or you want to be improving yourself. You want to better yourself. You want to try and strive for bigger and better success in your life, whatever that looks like. I hope it's both of those things. But if that's what you want to try and do, if you want to be the best version of yourself, and that is a commendable goal for any of us to have. And quite frankly, none of us can do any better than just being the best version of ourselves on any given day, any given year, any given lifetime. That's all we can ever hope to achieve. And I hope that this podcast in some small way helps you do that. And so to bring it back round to you and I and the individual, this idea of identity, I still think has a really important part of what we do. Because if you think about identity on an individual basis, it has two meanings for me. It's still the same definition. It's some set of qualities that distinguish you from another person. That's your identity in one version of the, um, of the definition. 
But the way we use our identity is often quite different as an individual because we can use identity in the same way that a company or organization uses identity. We can build ourselves an identity that maybe for online, for example, let's say our social media profiles, an online profile, a personal brand. We can utilize an identity, an identity that we want to build or create or cultivate to further a personal brand. And that might be around your social media. For example, you might want to be known in the public space as a certain type of person who stands for a certain type of thing, who behaves in a certain type of way. Your identity is something that you can cultivate when you're curating a feed on something like social media, because you can very carefully manipulate to some extent what people see of you in that space. This is where the danger, I think, comes in, because there is nothing wrong with doing that. Building personal brands is a, an enormous part of life today. It can be something that can generate a huge amount of success. It can generate conversation. There's a lot of value to be had from people utilizing personal branding. The danger, I think, comes in, particularly around social media, if we use that as an example, when people feel they have to build a personal brand or have to build an identity that might be different from the actual identity that they live on a daily basis. And what I mean by that is if you're building a character in your social media profiles, that's not actually you, that's not actually the real you deep down. I mean, if your social media was open and on all day, every day, would your followers see the same person that they see in the curated feed that you might post once a day or a couple of times a week? Is it the same person? Is it the same identity? And this, when I talk about danger, what I mean is, and look, there's two things here. It's not always dangerous. Building a personal brand deliberately, thoughtfully and carefully is absolutely fine. If you know that's what you're doing, if you know why you're doing it, if you're doing it for a very specific reason to build your personal brand to achieve a certain goal, as long as you consciously know you're doing that and there's a separation between that personal online identity and the real life identity that you want to live behind closed doors, as long as that's a conscious separation and a decision to make that choice, that's absolutely fine. But I don't think everybody does that. And I think actually we all know that social media is a breeding ground for people trying to portray an identity that isn't the one that they they live on a daily basis when the cameras are switched off. And that is something that I know for a fact hampers our own personal development and growth. And any success that we're trying to real, realize in the real world can be hampered when we're not living true to our real identity. And I know this because, well, for two reasons. Firstly, through experience, I've lived through the development of social media. I've seen these things happen. I've studied a lot about psychology. And even when I was back at McLaren in, in the, the team environment there in Formula One, there was an, a realization that people living and behaving and acting true to their own values and having those, those values aligned with their behaviors is how you get the best out of people. And this was an observation that was made back in the sort of late 2000s. And this was nothing to do with social media back then. Social media was really just emerging around that sort of time. But inside McLaren, 
through the McLaren lab that I've talked about on this podcast before, this idea of personal development, human performance development. We were looking at psychology as well as the physical elements, the mental elements, but also the psychology, the thinking behind getting the most out of your people in the team, getting the most out of the individuals that come together collectively to build this enormous Formula One team. And one of the things that became very, very clear was that if people are not living their true life, if they don't feel free to live their true life, if they feel like they have to align themselves with somebody else's values, you will never maximize that person's performance. And if you're not going to maximize somebody's performance in your team, the team will suffer. And the moment that became an understanding, became a realization that our team could suffer if the individuals in it weren't performing at their best, we had to do something about it. And it was part of this process that was then kickstarted about how we look after the people in our organization, how we make sure they are operating at their best, feeling their best, getting the most out of the skills that they have in their life, maximizing their strengths, minimizing their weaknesses, giving them the freedom within the roles within their team, within the organization to do what they do best. And those things might sound so obvious to hear right now, but back then nobody was thinking that way. It was revolutionary that we had decided to embrace this as a Formula One team. A team in an environment, by the way, that back then was all about macho, it was male dominated, it was all about working hard, there was no such thing as health and safety, there was no space for anybody to say, I'm feeling a bit tired today. No space for anybody to be sick or to not feel comfortable in the environment, to want to put their hand up and question why we did something. There was no room for any of those things until we started to have this realisation and it changed everything. And the reason I'm saying it is because to bring it back to identity, when you talk about a team like McLaren, for example, which had such a strong identity around professionalism and attention to detail, about forensic attention to detail. There was a realization that not everybody lived their life in the same way that Ron Dennis did. Now, Ron's attention to detail was second to none. I've never met anybody in my entire life that has attention to detail like Ron Dennis does. I don't think anyone will ever meet anyone in their lives who has attention to detail like Ron does. And he has been incredibly successful over many years because of that attention to detail. It's highly commendable in so many ways. The success he's had, the brand that he's built, the organization, the global technology company that McLaren is today is in no small part down to Ron Dennis's obsessive attention to detail. But it also made it very difficult for a lot of people to work there. And it's also absolutely true to say that we weren't maximizing all of the strengths of our organization by running the team that way, because a lot of people in that team couldn't necessarily naturally operate in the same way that Ron could. Their identities weren't the same as Ron's, and yet we were almost forcing people to live that life. We were forcing people to adapt their identities and become more Ron Dennis-like, essentially. Ron wanted everybody to work to the same exacting forensic standards that he did every single day. 
And on some levels, of course, we had to work to incredible standards. There is no room for second best in a Formula One team. But equally, we have to allow those people to deliver their best in whichever way works best for them. And because we had a thousand people in our team, we had a thousand different identities. We had a thousand different personalities, different people who wanted to work in different ways, who naturally worked better in different ways, who had different belief systems to each other, different values, personal values. They weren't all aligned with each other in terms of the way they wanted to live their lives, the way they'd lived their lives up to that point. This was a melting pot of a thousand different characters. And one of the things that the very best teams are able to do is to embrace that melting pot, is to take in all of those different identities and give each one the space to exist how they want to exist, to give everybody the space to identify and to live their life the way they want to do it. And when people are able to do that, they feel comfortable, they feel free, they're able to give their very best. And more importantly than that, they want to give their very best. And that was something that we realised at McLaren in the late 2000s and began the process of embracing. And it didn't happen overnight. It took time. But that time was something that we gave the process. And I was central to this process happening, to figuring out the best ways of allowing that to happen, to giving those people the space they needed, to listening to the people, to listening to people and how they said they wanted to live their lives, how they thought they worked best, and then trying to find ways to allow that to happen. Of course, it's not always possible to give everybody exactly what they want. You just can't do that because it would be chaos. But the more you're able to open up and see other people's identities, listen to how those people want to be identified, listen to how they identify themselves and embrace it and fit that into your team, the stronger your team's going to be. And when we're talking about the identities of individuals, think about you, think about yourself and the identity that you have. How do you think of yourself? That's something that not everybody is particularly clear on. And this is something else that we really had a realization of at McLaren when it's not as easy as just to say, okay, well, here's, you know, 10 employees. Let's ask them what their identities are and ask them what their strengths and weaknesses and how they want to live their life. Not all of those 10 people will know the answers to those questions. And it was a realization that I've had personally over those years as well, in that many of us, I think way, way many more of us than perhaps we realize, don't actually yet have a full grasp on what our identity is. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, this whole idea of social media can definitely get in the way of all of that. It can hamper us starting to have any appreciation of who we really are because we feel forced to be pigeonholed into the identity that society might want us to have. Social media is a perfect example of that. You open up your social media feed and you see this constant bombardment of people maybe your age, people in the fields that you're interested in, and you see this curated feed of people dressing a certain way, of behaving a certain way, of talking a certain way, and you feel like you have to fit in with that because that's all you see every time you scroll. Social media is a nightmare for that. Our young generations are growing up 
with that as one of their biggest influences. And I'm terrified about how that's going to impact an entire generation and beyond of people. But if you take social media aside for one moment, and again, think about you and your identity, do you really have any clue what it is? Because even aside from social media, the companies that we work in, the society that we live in, often tries to force us into a certain type of identity. I mean, there are so many different examples of this around gender and financial status, social status, race. So many of those examples are the most widely talked about ones, the obvious ones, where our identities are very much shoehorned into this narrow space and everyone feels like they have to identify in that same way. But the reality is we don't. And actually, I think even aside from those big, well-documented subject areas where people feel like society puts them into a box, I think even aside from all of those, we have grown up, for many of us, we've grown up almost putting ourselves into a certain box because of the experiences that have shaped us the things that we've seen in our life because of the way that our parents may have gone before and the generations that went before them. Many of us haven't been given the freedom to go out and figure out truly what our identity is. If we go back to what I said we learned at McLaren and how nobody can operate at their very best unless they're operating in a, in a sense that's true to their own identity – How on earth do you go about doing that if you don't actually know what your identity is? We often refer to our identity as the job that we do or what we do, what our status is in a family or in an organisation. You know, I'm a manager. I'm a footballer. I'm a father. These terms, these labels that we put on ourselves tend to create an identity for us. And actually, one of the things that I think is a really valuable process to go through is to take some time as individuals on our own and try and unpick those labels, to take the labels away, strip all of that away. And if someone were to come up to you at a dinner party that you've never met before and says, hi, who are you? And what's the answer to that question? Because in many of those type of scenarios, those social settings like a dinner party, like a, uh, you know, a a sort of a, a cocktail do, like any of these events that we turn up at, a work event, one of the first questions that people ask you is, you know, once you've introduced yourself with your name, the first question is so often, what do you do? And that's a terrible question to ask somebody because it's almost like you're reaching for that person's uh, identity by asking them what their job is. And that's part of the very problem that I'm talking about here. Because that's typically one of the first questions that we ask people, what do you do? What do you do for a living? We have grown up thinking that that's our identity. We, in the past, not so much anymore, but in the past, We've had business cards that have got our name stamped on it. And under our name, it's got our job title. And when we meet somebody, we hand that business card over. It's like a little ticket that says, here you go, read that. That's got my identity on it. But if we can spend a little bit of time stripping that away and just thinking to yourself, do it in the morning when you're up before the rest of your family, when you've got a quiet space, just think about 
Who are you? If you could describe yourself without ever talking about your job, without talking about your physical appearance, and talking about only your characteristics, your beliefs, your values, who's the real person inside you? It's an exercise that is so well worth going through. It's not the moment, it's not the work of a moment, it's not something you could really do in one morning, in one day. It's the work of period of months, it may be years before people really discover who they are, depends what phase of life you're in. And it's also something that can evolve over time. But it's a really valuable thing to try and uncover because if you can figure out your own true identity, if you can figure out who you really want to be, who you really are, you can then much more easily align your behaviours to that person. And I think if most people or many people go through that process, one of the things that would hit you, one of the stark realities is that actually once you've written down a few words that you think might describe your identity, and remember, remember identity as a definition is the qualities that distinguish you from anyone else. If you think about that and you go down and write down some of those qualities that deep down inside you, you know are there. If you write those down on a page and then look at those words that you've written down and ask yourself, is that how I behave? Is that how I go through my life? Are those the characteristics or the traits? Are those the values that other people would describe me as if somebody else was asked about my identity? How far apart do you think the words that somebody else would write down about you are from the words that you would write down about yourself? And when I talk about writing these words down, I don't mean writing down the words that you would like to be associated with yourself, the kind of values that you think you should write down, because that is the very problem in the beginning. That's how we do live our lives. I'm talking about writing down the words that actually are you, the deep down characteristics that nobody in this world knows as well as you do. You don't have to share this with anybody, but write it down on a page because it might be a bit of an eye opener if you can be truly honest with yourself. And if you can be that honest with yourself, you might find it incredibly helpful as a guide, as a framework to start working towards in terms of aligning your actual behaviours with the true values that you deeply believe are the true ones to you, your identity. Now, in the same way that Rolls-Royce stick this big shiny grill on the front of an electric vehicle that doesn't need it, it's there to remind people of the brand identity of that particular company something that's associated with Rolls-Royce that's instantly recognisable, that everybody, although they may never have seen that new car, the Spectre before, they know it's a Rolls-Royce without ever having to see a badge, without anyone having to tell them, because they can see it the moment they see that, that face, the front of the car, because it's part of the brand's identity. What do you think people might see about you if people see you for the first time, if they have a snapshot memory in their mind, if somebody goes to those people and says, right, tell me the first thing you think of when you think of Joe Bloggs, what are they going to say about you? What would be those words that come to somebody else's mind to describe your characteristics and your identity? It's a really interesting internal process to go through. 
a one that's difficult sometimes, really hard to be that honest with yourself. And I'm pretty sure most of us are never that honest with ourselves. We often like to think we are, but I bet we're not really. I bet we would, in the first instance, write down words that we would love to have associated with ourselves. But then you might have to go through that list again, revisit it and ask, really, how true is this? And if you end up with some words on a page that you don't like, can you figure out why they're there? If that's true, if you really have some character traits of yours that you're not particularly proud of or you don't like, is there something you can do about it? Is there a reason behind it? Is it something that's evolved over time because of the experiences you've had that have shaped you? It's perfectly understandable. These difficult words that you might see on the page when you finish the exercise that you might not like, that you might not want to associate with yourselves. The fact that they're there is not a problem. It's not something that's necessarily your fault. It's something that's evolved over time. And our characters are built over all of the experiences that we've been through. Many of those experiences, unpleasant, difficult, traumatic ones experiences that we would never wish anyone else to have at different times in their lives, but we might have gone through them. But it doesn't mean that it has to be that way forever. There are means and methods of talking these things out, of reprogramming ourselves or understanding why we might feel a certain way, why we might have these identifiers deep within us. And if we can understand why they're there and figure out a reason why they may have come to be, we can equally figure out a reason or a way or a means to minimise them, to lose them over time, to reintroduce the values that we, we know we really want to have in our life. These things are absolutely possible. It's training our brains to be the people that we want to be. And at McLaren, when we went through this process of trying to figure out all of the different ways that we can maximise human performance giving people this freedom and this space to figure out who they are, who they want to be, and give them the space to live their life, even their work life, in that way as best we could, was an absolute game changer for the amount of performance that we could get out of each of those individuals. And if we're getting more performance from every individual in that team, the team begins to become stronger. And the fact that we started winning championships and we started challenging consistently over a period of time for the, in the latter part of the 2000s is no coincidence that we were going through the same process in the background at the same time. It's not something that was particularly widely publicised. This was a quiet process, an internal process, as it should be for us as individuals. It's not something that I want to ever be putting on social media because if we're posting it on social media, it probably goes against all of the things that I have said. If you're posting something on social media, it's for the benefit of others. And yet this process that I've described of trying to figure out and embrace our own identities, that's not for anyone else. The very purpose of doing that is that it is purely for us. And yes, of course, the people around us may end up benefiting in the long run. Our companies, our businesses, our employers, our employees will all stand to benefit if we become comfortable in our own skin, comfortable with our own identities and begin living our lives truly aligned to those. 
So it's a valuable, valuable process, believe me. And look, I'd love to know if any of you manage to do that. If you take the time to do it, if you have a go at it, if you find it difficult, let me know if you want to. I'm happy to try and help. This isn't something that I'll do publicly, but if you want to bounce some ideas off me or talk about how it's going, please do. My DMs are always open, as they always are, for everybody who ever wants to send me a question, send me a comment, ask me something about something you're going through, send me a a topic you'd like to see covered in this podcast. It's those things that fuel me and fuel the podcast, and it's more of that that I'd love to see coming my way. So please do send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Right, let me move it on to uh, the next part of what I want the podcast to cover today, because I thought last week we we got a message from somebody and we used it in the podcast to create some content and have a talking point, a discussion. And I've got another one this week that I'd ut- like to utilise in the same way. Let me just find it. It's on Instagram. And this one, uh, sorry, it's on Twitter. This one came from uh, somebody called Hamish. And he sent me a nice long DM. It was a question. And it was centered around, uh, the exa- he used the example of McLaren. And he was talking about, do you remember the Freddo gate? Which was this little controversy that bubbled up in the media when McLaren were uh, offering or reportedly offering little chocolate bars, Freddo chocolate bars in exchange for success. So when the team did well, you could get it, you'd get a chocolate bar. And it was this joke that emerged in the media, but it soon erupted as social media has the, the ability to do. It erupted into a pretty brutal attack on McLaren in that if it was pitched in the way that all the all that McLaren could see value in, all that they they valued their staff was through a tiny 10p chocolate bar. So instead of giving them a monetary reward for success or celebrating them some other way, they would be getting a 10p chocolate bar. And that was the joke, right? And this thing emerged into something way bigger than it ever should have been. And the question that Hamish has written to me was around that. And he says, and I'm going to summarise it because it is quite long, but he says... When a team uh, like McLaren in that particular moment has a PR disaster, he says um, the culture in the team really must suffer when the outside world is talking about you or your team in such a negative way. How do a team like McLaren and their employees get over the problem of the media talking about how bad the team are and the team on the inside of that being the almost the victims of that negative PR campaign. And that's a summary of what Hamish was saying, right? So essentially what we're talking about here is if a team is being lambasted from the outside, and there's another great example of this, which was my team McLaren in 2007 during the Spygate affair. And this is what I went back and, and spoke to Hamish about. The Spygate affair was a, a perfect example of... Uh, when the outside world branded us as cheats. And on the inside of that, although I personally had done nothing wrong, I hadn't cheated in any way, but I felt like I was being labelled a cheat from the outside. And this is exactly the same as what the McLaren employees, when that Freddo gate controversy spiralled out of control from nowhere, they felt the same. Like They felt like they were being ridiculed to some extent, like they were working for chocolate bars. How does a team manage something like that? And the reason I'm using this as an example is because, A, if we're in a company, many companies suffer things like this all the time, 
particularly now that social media is a thing, little memes and these jokes can bubble up out of nowhere and they can go viral and they can actually end up having an enormous impact. But it's exactly the same when it comes to individuals. Something can emerge from nowhere and take hold very quickly. And if it's something that's negative or feels negative to the person on the other end of it, the impact can be quite severe. It can be much more significant than many people would ever give it credit for. Now, in the case of McLaren and the Freddo Gate, and it's very similar to that of the Spygate situation that I was involved in, McLaren survived those PR disasters because their team culture was so strong inside the organisation. And I can speak from experience of the Spygate affair in that one of the things that Ron Dennis did incredibly well when we were under attack from so many different angles from all around the world, when the media were having an absolute field day with our organisation, calling us cheats, labelling us cheats, calling into question any success that we'd had in recent years, talking about the fact that we must have cheated then too. And you could equate this to some extent, and I know I'm teetering on dangerous ground if I bring Red Bull into this, but this whole idea of budget cap breaches, and I'm recording this on, just for clarity, I'm recording this on uh, Tuesday night, uh, ahead of any announcement from the FIA about what happened exactly with the budget cap breach at Red Bull. But there will be people in that organisation who have had nothing to do with Red Bull's breaching of a budget cap and yet will feel like the world is branding them as cheats in exactly the same way. Now, the way to deal with this and the way that McLaren dealt with it incredibly well, the way that I have no doubt Red Bull will be dealing with it in the same way, is... You take what's being thrown at you and you almost turn it and utilize it to your advantage. So at McLaren, when the world was against us, we had this feeling where Ron Dennis galvanized the team by talking about what was being said about us as complete nonsense, by disparaging all of these rumors as being foundationless, as having no basis And once we believed that that was the case, once we believed we were the victims of this unlawful or this unmitigated attack by the world's media, it galvanized us in that we felt we had to defend ourselves and fight back. And the way that we fought back was the only way that we knew how. It was the way that Ron Dennis told us we had to fight back. It was by being the very best we could and going out there and winning on the racetrack. And that's exactly what we did. It had this feeling of pulling down the garage doors, closing off the outside world, and it was us versus the world because that was the type of culture that we had. We had such a strong team environment inside the organisation that nobody could break us. And if it felt like our team was under attack... We gathered round, we supported each other, we put our arms around each other and we fought our way together out of the situation. And we did that in the things that we did best, going to win races, to operate in the very best way we could, to be the best at pit stops, to go on and challenge for world titles. And it's no surprise to me that the very next year after Spygate in 2007, in 2008, we went on and we did win that world title. Red Bull will be doing the same kind of things because the people in the team, 
by far the vast majority of people in that team have had nothing to do with any wrongdoing when it comes to budget caps, if indeed that's what's happened. They are innocent victims of their brand being brandished cheats. And they will be doing the same thing, I have no doubt. The culture in that organisation will be strong enough that they will group together and they'll almost throw two fingers up to the outside world and they say, listen, I don't care what you say, come and see what we can do when it comes to being back at a racetrack again. And our companies that I go and see all around the world can and should be trying to build a culture like that, a culture strong enough that when you have some kind of upset, some kind of negative force working against you, you can take it. You can take it on. You can beat it. You can galvanize the people in your team. You know that on your behalf, if it's your company, on your behalf, your people will fight your corner. That's the sign of an amazing team culture. When the team, the people in the team will defend the team. The people in the organization will defend the organization. They will stand up for the organization. That is the ultimate in teamwork. And Hamish's question was, how do you go about building that? And this is exactly what I spend my life talking about today to companies all around the planet. It's not something you build overnight. It's something that takes years, quite frankly, to put together. And if you get to one of those negative type PR situations and the world turns against you and your company crumbles It's a very clear sign that your culture is not strong enough and you've got work to do. It's about building trust. It's about having the team trust the leadership in that team, being willing to do things for you, to stick their head above the parapet if that's what it takes. That comes from leading by example, from the leadership in an organization doing things, behaving in the way that they expect their employees to to behave. For all the things I said earlier on about Ron Dennis getting some of this stuff wrong when it came to attention to detail, he also led by example. He lived his life in exactly the way that he demanded everyone else operate within the company. His attention to detail was the best of anybody's at McLaren. And that meant that if he was willing to go to those lengths of attention to detail, well, then so were we. Leading by example and setting the right example consistently over and over again. Knowing that or having a feeling that as a member of a team or an organization, the people above you, the leadership, will do things for you. They'll have your back if you need them. They will be there to support you in your moment of need. If they're going to do that consistently, and that's the key word here, consistently, then when the moment comes that they need your support you're far more likely to give it. And these traits that I'm talking about in building team culture, building trust, leading by example, all of those traits that go into putting a wonderful team together, the very best organizations operate in that way. All of those traits are exactly the same traits that we can apply to ourselves in a a friendship group, in a family environment. If we want to talk about relationships on a personal level, It's exactly the same. Whether it's two people in this relationship or a thousand people in a team, the very same principles apply. Building trust, leading by example, asking of your people the things that you are willing to do yourself. Asking of somebody you're in a relationship with 
of the things that you're willing to do yourself. That's how you start to build trust between a pair. So this whole idea of building a team, building an environment, whether it's two people or many more than that, that will stand up for each other when the moment comes when that's required is something that can be continuously being built and should be continuously being built. It's something that takes time to build. It's something that relies on consistency. If you say you're going to do something a certain way, do it and do it every single time. That's how we build consistency into a team environment, into a relationship. And that consistency means reliability. And if people know that they can rely on you, whether you're an employer or an employee, that reliance will be reciprocated when the big moments come. And that was exactly what I talked to Hamish about this week. It was exactly that that enabled McLaren to withstand this PR disaster that they faced a few years ago in Spygate. The PR disaster they faced when it came to the Freddo Gate situation, the one that Red Bull are going through right now, and so many more. Ferrari right now in Formula One have been the butt of so many people's jokes because of their inconsistencies, because of their failures out on the racetrack, the seeming mistakes that we've seen play out in races. The internet's gone wild in taking the mickey out of them. Imagine how that feels to be inside the team. You may have never made a major mistake in your career at Ferrari, but the moment you pull on that red shirt, you will feel like you're being branded in the same way. So we have a responsibility, first of all, to try not to judge people, to try not to judge people too harshly and brandish everybody with the same brush that we might want to have tarnished or we may have tarnished somebody else. An association is not necessarily the same as guilt. It's not necessarily the same as having the same traits, the same flawed characteristics. The reasons behind a mistake or an error don't necessarily associate to every single person in that lineup, in that team. And if you think about the people on an individual basis, and that's all they are, it's easy to look at somebody like Ferrari and just see the great big brand and feel like you're just taking the mickey out of the great big brand when you pass around these jokes. But what about the people on the inside of that great big brand? Big brands are just big groups of people. Imagine if it was your family. Imagine if somebody was passing memes and jokes consistently in a negative sense around your family because one member of your family has made a mistake somewhere. I know that seems like an extreme version of the same example, but it is the same example. It would hurt every member of your family, I would imagine. And it's the same kind of thing. So to withstand that kind of thing, you've got to have the right culture and environment. We hope that those things don't happen, but they do. That is life. They are going to happen all of the time. People will make mistakes. So building the right team culture in an organization or in a sports team, building the right culture inside your family environment, bringing our children up to think in this same sort of way, leading by example and building trust consistently is really the key to building high-performing teams that can withstand a little bit of negative press every now and again when something doesn't go your way. It's not easy, and as I said before, it takes time, but it really is the key to long-term sustained success through the general ups and downs of life that we all face. 
Okay, we've come to the end of yet another episode. Episode 46, this one. They are racking up now, aren't they? We are flying through season five. I need to say an enormous thank you to Car Gods for supporting me throughout season five. Um, Because by supporting me, I hope they're also supporting you guys because the podcast will continue to grow with their support. It's enabling me to work behind the scenes to make it bigger, to make it better. I am still operating out of a building site right now. You'll see it if you're watching this on YouTube. My home is in, in the midst of massive renovation. I don't have a permanent studio yet, but I will and it will be coming very soon. And Car Gods are helping in supporting me to do that, as well as in many other ways. So please go and check out cargods.com. I talked about brand identity earlier on. Their brand identity is all about attention to detail. It's about doing things right. And if you ever see their website, if you see their company, if you're ever lucky enough to visit their headquarters, as I've been, you can see that brand identity immediately. If you see one of their trucks, their vans out on the road, their detailing vans, the brand identity is so strong. And the attention to detail is there in every single thing that they do. And attention to detail as a brand value, as I know from coming from McLaren, is one of the very best. And especially when you're talking about car detailing products, where it literally is all about the detail. It's about making your car look as good as it can possibly look through a little bit of hard work and elbow grease, but crucially by using the products that will minimize that hard work and elbow grease to get the same impact. It's about putting products on your car that will protect it, that will give it longevity and keep it looking good for way longer than so many other companies out there and their products. I have tried them all and believe me, car gods are the best that I've found so far. Go check out cargods.com. You will not disappoint me. You won't be disappointed. And I told you last week, and I'm going to say it again because we are approaching Christmas there is a wonderful advent calendar, a Car Gods advent calendar. It's a big one and it's not the cheapest in the world, but believe me, if you've got somebody special in your life that you know would appreciate a bunch of car detailing and car care products every single day for a month around the Christmas period, well, this is definitely the gift for them. Get on there and check it out, cargods.com. Thank you very much as ever to Car Gods. Thank you so much to you guys. I cannot express how much I appreciate the messages that I receive from you every single week. From the bottom of my heart, please keep them coming. They mean the world to me. And as I said before, really heartfelt appeal. If anybody is able to go and give me a review and a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this episode in the Apple Podcast Store. I need more of those. We're not getting enough of those. And they are so crucial to how this podcast is pushed and shared through that particular platform, which is by far the biggest platform of where anybody listens to this podcast. It's on Apple. So I know most of you are listening there, and yet most of you are not yet giving me a rating or review. So if you can spare a few moments... I know it takes a few moments, it's a couple of clicks, but if you do it, I'd be so, so grateful. See if you can, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Listen, have a wonderful week, guys. Whatever it is you're up to, as I say every single week, try and check in with yourself whenever you can, if every day if possible, and ask yourself, have you managed to do these things? How close have you managed to get to this little mantra that I try and do my best to live my life by? And the mantra is this. Do the right things, 
do the things right.